0: Wasn't that fun when he, he, he saw the elephant? Finally, he saw the elephant. Okay, honest, honestly, how many of you, it took a while to get to the elephant? Yeah, yeah. You see, we, we see the thing, but we don't see it. We don't see it. And that's what Paul is doing in this letter to Philippi he 's reminding them that his circumstances are different than they're seeing it, just like his first circumstance. If you remember in our time in the book of Acts how, how Paul went to Philippi, he crosses the water, he gets there to troas and, and kind of like josh and danielle he 's seeking the lord 's leading for ministry and the lord says well don't go this way, but don 't go that way and uh, they get to the end of the water and they, they have this man from Macedonia, and that vision and what Paul has in that dream it lines up with what he 's known from god 's word and the commission from the church, that that sends them then across the water to Macedonia. And that's how your people heard the gospel, right? Ruling Emmanuel was because Paul went to Macedonia and all of Greece hears the gospel as a result. And and Europe and and the rest of us are included in that. And, uh, but... First thing that happens there, well, not the first thing that happens, but along the way, in the midst of great ministry and a young slave girl who is freed from a demonic spirit, but because of that, Paul's cast in jail. He and Silas are beaten, and then they're thrown in the inner prison, into the dungeon, right? That seemed like a terrible thing, and yet it was a good thing. God used that. God used that hardship, that suffering that they endured, and they endured it willingly. They did not appeal to their citizenship and only until after they had spent the night in the dungeon. And once God had delivered them, then they reminded the magistrates. So by the way, we're Roman citizens. And what that worked, if you remember, what that worked for the church in Philippi, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke would leave and go on to the next town. But what that did for the Christians they left behind was the magistrates those in power the romans of the city they were they were eager to, to they were too quick to treat harshly these first christians that came along they would be much more carefully about how they mistreated christians in the coming months maybe years that would give this church an opportunity to grow and uh, they would think twice about unjustly harassing them. And so, so the, the hardship that Paul endures is actually good for the church. There's more than just a strategy there. There's more than just this was right for the church. It was a circumstance and a, and a, and a tactic and a strategy. It's bigger than that. And he unfolds some of that. That comes out in this letter to Philippi that we're going to be sharing in the next couple of months. I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians, if you're using the church Bible, I think you'll find us on page 980, somewhere around there. If you're using your own Bible, you'll find us in Philippians chapter 1, Paul's letter to Philippi. And what I want to do before we... um, um, before we actually dive into the first couple of lines, this is going to be one of those series I'm so looking forward to it, because we're going to go line by line. We're going to go verse by verse and look what God has for us here. But before we start that, and we're going to do that this morning, I want to give you an overarching picture of the book. Before we do any of that, though, I want us to pray because I want God to, sp- I want God to open our eyes. I want, to- I want us to see what God would begin to have us see out of this letter to Philippi. Father, would you, would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your word? Father, would you speak to your people? Would you give me clarity of mind and thought as I, as I share these things that you've shown me? Father, would you help us together as a church to, to, to be of one mind, of one spirit together, and that the mind of Christ, that, that we would live together and toward others more of him because of what you have shown us in your word? So, Lord, do your work. Do your work. Among us, Father, let us be changed by your truth that we might then make a difference in the lives of others, that you would use us toward others for their good in your grace. We pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the letter to Philippi, one of Paul's what's called the prison letters that he's writing. To Philippi, he writes to Ephesus, he writes to the church in Colossae, he writes to his friend Philemon. All those four letters are known as the prison epistles that Paul seems to write from, from Rome in his first imprisonment that's just at the end of the book of Acts. So that's kind of the historical context. So what you read about Philippi in Acts chapter 16, that has already happened when Paul first visited the city and he has come through on his, on his, on his missionary journeys a couple of times since then. At this time, he's in jail. It seems like a bad deal. It seems very serious. It seems like, what's happened here? This, this new start, this gospel that we heard, it seems like it's being crushed. It's being squelched. It's, it's, going to, it's going to cave. It's going to die. It's going to collapse. Rome is not going to allow it to continue. And Paul has a very different perspective on that. Uh, Paul, that, that, that's why we took this image of Philippi, that picture that you see on your bulletin cover, that is the Philippi Valley. That is the place where the city sat and that's the place where that great battle between the forces of Augustus Caesar and the forces of Brutus and Cassius who had, who had um, assassinated Julius Caesar, Augustus' or Octavian's father, And that's where that battle came to a head. Is the future of the Roman Empire going to be ruled as a republic by the Senate? Or is it going to be an empire under one emperor, one dictator, the Caesar? Caesar's forces win. And so settle those war veterans, the victorious war veterans are settled in a colony called Philippi. And so there's a whole bunch of new construction, new growth. It's a prestigious city. They have rights and privileges, the citizens of the city, even as if they were citizens of the city of Rome. We think about citizenship of a whole country, and, uh, but, but in the ancient world, you were, you were citizens as well of a, if you had Roman citizenship, it connected you to the capital city itself. And those in Philippi had that same kind of standing, even though they were not in Rome itself. So it was a a city where they were used to doing things the Roman way. They valued things that Rome valued. They lived lives very Roman. Almost every inscription in the ruins of Philippi, the ancient inscriptions, first and second century stuff, is all in Latin, not in Greek. Because it was a Roman city, a very Roman city. That's not the case in, in, in Athens. A lot of the inscriptions are in Greece rather than Rome. Rome just added a little bit. But in, in Philippi, everything was Roman. They lived a life according to Rome. The, the emperor was their greatest example. The, go, the ambitions of the Roman world were their ambitions and goals. And uh, the... Uh, The uh, means, the finances, the military strength that maintained law and order, these were the things upon which Philippi relied on. Paul has a different perspective. And Paul wants them to see their circumstance and his in a different light. And so in that image there on your bulletin cover, you see Paul in prison looking out, but he sees beyond the bars. Paul is more free even from that Roman prison than most anybody else in the world because he sees things from God's perspective. And if the Son shall make you free, John eight thirty six. if the Son shall make you free, you will be free indeed. And Paul has been made free in Christ, and in this letter, he's telling us what that looks like. He's telling us how we step into that. That's why I've chosen that phrase out of that verse in John. It's not even in Philippians. And yet that's my theme verse that I want us to keep in mind as we go forward in this book. Because we want to step another step or two into that freedom that God has set before us in Christ. So I want to give you an overview of the book as a whole. And then I want to come back and go line by line first couple of verses. First of all, I was given this overview years and years ago. I don't even remember when. I remember by who. Um, a, a, a Bible teacher named John Fairchild, he, he said Philippians gives us legs to the Christian life. This is how we, this is how we walk out this, this Christian life that we have been given in Christ. And by legs, the four chapters divide nicely into four emphases. That Christ Jesus is our life. Christ Jesus is our example. Christ Jesus is our goal. We have a new goal. We have a new direction, a new priority that we're aiming after. And Christ Jesus is our sufficiency. He is the means by by which we will pull it off. Philippians is one of those books that that is dear to us. It's it's good that we spend some time in it because this, this is the book that probably has more quotables per chapter than any other book in the Bible. This is a book, this is your go-to. This is, he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Lord shall supply all your needs according to his... Don't, aren't those verses you lean on? Be anxious in nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known to God. Right. These are the things that, that we we rely on, we lean on, and, and we're gonna see those in context in the study. First of all, Philippians chapter one, Christ, our life. Paul says, for me to live is Christ in verse 21. He he evaluates his present circumstances not on what makes for a successful teacher. Well, he gathers students. He founds schools, the Greek, the great Greek teachers. They um, Aristotle had his Lyceum, and Plato has his his school of Athens, and, and they they founded schools that would endure even beyond them. And Paul wasn't starting new schools. In fact, Paul's career ends in a in a in a prison in Rome, or so it seems. And yet he's evaluating his life in a completely different perspective. More along the lines of Christ. His life is going to look like Christ. He says for me to live is Christ. I live out Christ's life in my life and that means laying my life down for the sake of others. He says, you know, really, we talked about that Oh, that in the future that the that Lord hastes the day when our faith will be sight and we will be with the Lord in glory. And yet, and yet, this is the opportunity that we get to live Christ toward others. Paul says, you know, Andrew, to depart and to be with Christ here in chapter 1, that'd be far better. But to remain on in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul's not thinking about what's better for him then. He makes the determination based on what's better for the sake of others. For him to live is Christ. Christ is his life. Christ is his example. There's chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. That whole humility in the incarnation piece of Philippians 2, 6 through 8, and the the humility that comes first and then the glory that follows. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That follows his humbling. He is our example. Now is not the day for glory. This is the day for service. This is the day for humility. This is the day of, of laying my wants aside, and considering others more important than myself. Jesus is our example in that. That's why that mind of Christ is to be our mind. That's the one mind in which we walk. But isn't that just Jesus? Paul fills out the chapter by, by, by pointing, he, he, he subtly, he, he almost, it's, it, it's easy to overlook that Paul Um, does use himself as an example that that his life would be poured out as an offering on the sacrifice of their faith. Paul's an example in his sacrificial living for the sake of others. But he holds up Timothy. He says, Timothy, I'm going to send you Timothy as soon as I can because I've got nobody else. How does he describe Timothy? I've got nobody else who will sincerely care for your needs, not his agenda. That's the example of Christ who considered others more important than himself. He holds up Epaphroditus who willingly risked his life to finish the service that the church of Philippi was sending to Paul. They had collected a gift but Paul's there and they're here. Epaphroditus is the one to send it but along the way he becomes so sick in the midst of the journey that he nearly died but he pressed on not guarding his own health he pressed on to complete what was needed in their service of faith. He was willing to risk his life for the sake of others. Those are the examples, and those are Christ kind of examples that are lived out in lives like yours and mine, young men, old men, young women, older women. Christ is our example. Jesus is not only a Savior to believe. His life is ours to live. The incarnation continues, we said in the last couple of weeks. That's why we served. That's why we give ourselves in serving. You know, that the idea to be, to be changed ourselves by God's truth so that we can impact others by his grace. We want to be used by God in the lives of others, and that'll be because we ourselves have been transformed more into the life of Christ ourselves. Chapter 3, Christ is our goal, our ambition. There's a lot of goal-oriented language in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verses verse, verse 8, 8 to 11. He says, I, 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 I look at all that I valued before, all the status that I had, the standing, the recognition I had from others, those things that, I, that were gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I've got a new goal. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all these things, and I consider them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that, here's, here's his goal, this is his desire that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings. Paul's goal, his aim, his priority is that he would even join in the sufferings of Christ so that there he would know his Savior, and he would experience that resurrection, that life out of death, power. He said, not that I've already obtained, verse 12, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider yet that I've attained it, but one thing I do, this is not one of those verses, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and Straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are surrounded by distractions. Distractions in recognition, distractions in the opinions of others, the distractions in how we will close ourselves, how we will live, what things we will gather about us and what other people will think of them when they see the stuff, the, the uh Oh, the temptation in parenting today to begin at age four or five to begin building your kid's resume that's going to somehow help them in college and the push into sports and intramurals because of the effect in college on that and the whole future life is at stake here when the poor child is five or six. Paul's got a, a different goal, that our eternity is at stake And yet it is not attained. We don't enter into it in any of the normal means that were the Roman way or the American way. We're going to get confronted with that in the midst of chapter 3. And in chapter 4, we're going to be reminded instead that Jesus is our sufficiency. In the midst of real needs, in this real life, in the midst of anxious situations that press in upon us, we can be anxious about nothing. Nothing. We don't have to be anxious about any of these things that so press in on us because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, that my God will supply all your needs. Now, this is from a man who's stuck in prison. This is from a man who's been off his ministry and mission for over two years now, probably at least three years, that he's been He's been hindered. He's been prevented from visiting the churches that he started and and engaging and teaching and, and going further and off to Spain and other places that he intended to take the gospel. And he's been kept from that. And yet he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. His will, not mine. And my God will provide all of my needs. Sometimes it feels like he's not. Sometimes they feel like, well, in this need, God is not answering. I'm on my own here. Well, if you looked at it only from an earthly lens, you might not see the elephant. If you look at it only from an earthly lens, you might evaluate Paul's life or Jesus's and say, it started with so much promise, but it ended in failure. Each of them were rejected and then silenced by the ultimate might and power of Rome. And yet in Jesus' death was our forgiveness and in his resurrection is our exaltation and and God in Jesus through his 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 condemnation and death has has condemned sin and death without destroying we sinners in the process look what God has done so Christ is sufficient He's sufficient for eternity. How is it that we don't think he can handle this week? That brings us then back to chapter 1. If Christ is our life and Christ is our example, he is our goal. He gives us a new aim and he is our sufficiency for it. Let's jump in and get started. Chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. Servants of Christ Jesus. Let's start with what's not. Let's start with what's not included in this opening verse. Normally when Paul, when Paul opens an epistle, he identifies himself in his role. Oftentimes I'll come up front and i say, if we haven't met, you know, uh, 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 you don't know me yet. My name is Bob Carlson. My, I, I, I get to be the, one of the pastors here at Brush Prairie Church. I, I identify I'm the pastor. You know that. That means you're supposed to listen to me. Maybe that's what I mean by that. I don't know. It doesn't seem to be working, so I don't think that's it. But but we, we we deal with titles. yet one guy meets another guy, and what do you do? What do you do? What's your title? What's your position? What's your role? Right? Paul doesn't do that here. A lot of his letters to churches are corrective. Either he needs to remind them that they do need to listen, or he's reminding them of the truth of what he's saying so that their strength will be that their faith will be strengthened. But here. In the warm tone of this letter, this is a, this is a family communication. He doesn't need to rely. He, the, 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 the argue, there's not an argument in the background that's raised the temperature to say, because I'm your father. That isn't entering in here. This is, a, this is a warm and tender relationship in this epistle. And rather than apostle, Paul and Timothy are presented as servants of Christ Jesus. As servants... Is, a, is, is an easier word for us, but it's probably more akin to the idea of a slave. This servitude was not a servant on um, an ongoing free will basis. This is one who is now under obligation. Maybe one who who committed themselves into a servitude, but now as a servant or sold themselves into slavehood, you could th- Think of it in our terms. That now under bondage to somebody committed to their will, not his own. A slave in contrast to a master. Slave in contrast to free. The slave instead of the son in the house. That's the contrast that's in view here. It's not a position that claims any standing at all. Except a commitment that not my will, but his will be done. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. Now that collides with the civic pride of a city like Philippi. A city like Philippi where Roman esteem and Roman values ruled the day and you were somebody if the authorities recognized you as somebody. Based on accomplishments and based on who you know and based on what family you were in and what standing that family had. Our standing is not in our Families, who we know, even what we accomplished, our standing is in Christ because of what he accomplished. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who happen to be in Philippi. Now a lot of us, as I look around the room, a lot of us are from a lot of different places. Julie and I came from up north, a little further, Everett Marysville area. Some of you have come from other countries. Some of you have come from other states originally around this country. We have a lot of different backgrounds. There's a commonality we all have. His name is Jesus. We've got a lot of differences in this room, but we have all of Jesus in common, and there there is our identity. That is who you are. We often identify ourselves in, in the basis of some origin or background or experience or role standing that we've achieved. But we are saints. We are set apart ones. We are uniquely holy. The particular ones of God's own choosing whom he's called to himself. We are saints in Christ Jesus. There's that incarnation that, uh, again where we, we are united and joined to him. He took on humanity that he could share that with us forever. And that is our standing. Do you notice how when he says to the saints in Christ Jesus, who happened to be at Philippi, to saints, in Christ, who happened to live. You know, there was a time several years ago, a decade or two ago, when people in Portland sort of dismissed the people of Vancouver as those folks who live off in Vantucky. You know, we were the backwoods folk compared to the real, you know, enlightened ones of, of downtown. We are, we are saints in Christ Jesus. We happen to live at Brush Prairie. And we love where God has set us. This is not our home. We're only passing through. We have a destination ahead of us. Our citizenship is in heaven. And yet, God has set us each on mission here, belonging to heaven, located presently in Brush Prairie. Along with the overseers and deacons. Isn't that odd? The overseers and deacons, this, you, would tra- you could translate this to bishops and the deacons. In hierarchical churches, those are actual roles and offices. Our church has those same roles. Did you know we have bishops? I didn't know a Baptist. Baptists. Baptists don't have bishops. Yes, we do. The the same word, this overseers here, relates to to the office that elders, which is descriptive of the men. The men are elders, elders in faith and age. Presbyteros, the Greek word for elders, actually means gray-haired ones. I was waiting for years for some gray to come in because I wanted to be qualified. So, so it describes the the men, the elder in the faith, who do work of pastoring or shepherding. It's not just the, those who are called pastor who pastor, but our elders are a team of shepherds. Elders in the church they are to do the work of shepherding as those who God has given oversight, the overseer. There's the office. Tim, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he talks about the one who desires an overseership or a bishopic, the office of bishop or elder. But Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he puts all three of those terms, bishop or overseer, elder, presbyteros, and pastor, shepherd. He puts all of those together in one role. The same men have an office of overseer or bishop. And their job is to shepherd the church of God, to guide, to lead, to direct. They, they need to do that from an, from an eldership of faith, a maturity in faith in Christ. And so that means that, yes, you can call me Bishop Bob if you would like to. Yeah, probably not. that that doesn't fit our our, our roots as a a church but the the focus is and yet that's the the office in a local church and right alongside it there's this office of servant the word deacon means servant that's interesting we think of offices we think of responsibility and and management and and giving direction And, and yet the office of deacon is an office of servant that's what it's called it's one of those weird words that the Greek word is diakonos, and so we didn't, we didn't translate into an English word normally. Normally, we just transliterate it. We put English letters in place of the Greek letters and call it deacon instead of diakonos. But what it means is Servant. So we have a habit here around the church. We refer to our elders as shepherds, along with the pastors, and we refer to, to our deacon and deaconesses as servants because that's what the word means, and we need to remember how this works together. And both of those, in those offices, the office of serving, in fact, serving is also a word that was used of, of, of the waiting of tables because that's what they did. In Acts chapter 6, right, there were physical needs of widows who were being left out in the sharing of the resources the church had to provide for daily needs, even feeding some of the poor in the church, and some of the widows were being left out, and they established deacons to make sure that that didn't happen, that needs were met, people were taken care of. A care ministry in the church was the first responsibility given to those called servants or deacons. And so it continues. Some of those same men were leading leading evangelists in the early church. Think of Philip, think of Stephen. Men who who likewise were willing to lay their lives down for the testimony of Christ. Servants of the church and of the gospel. But do you notice how it was the saints along with the hmm, elders and deacons, the shepherds and servants. It's almost like the, the order, the position, the recognition is turned upside down. Because it is because it is. Didn't Jesus say, you want to be first in the kingdom? You need to become a servant of all. The elephant in the room, if I can go back to that image one more time, The elephant in the room for us is we still as Christians try to live the Christian life according to the American dream and American norms and standards as Philippi was trying to do that according to the norms of Rome and they collide, they don't fit together. And so this letter, warmly, gently, tenderly, Paul is poking around a little bit at what our Christian life really looks like in a Roman or an American world. And it's a new perspective. It's seen beyond the bars. It's seen beyond these present things that press in upon us and seen what this life is that God has given us, seen it differently and new. That's what God has done for us in Christ. He has given us, as it says in verse 2, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. What has Paul done there? He does that in all of his epistles, it seems like. Sometimes he adds in mercy as well. Maybe things were a little more difficult in some churches than others. He throws in a little bit of mercy as well. But grace to you and peace. What he's done is he's taken the two standard greetings of the day. In the, Gre- in the Greco-Roman world, the standard greeting was grace to you. Caris, grace to you. In the Jewish subculture, the standard greeting was shalom, shalom alechim, peace to you, alechim shalom, to you peace, was the way to return that. So if you go to Israel in the future, shalom alechim, alechim shalom. The the passing of peace, one to the other. Paul takes the two of them, Jewish and Gentile or Greco-Roman, and he puts them together in one new blessing for the church, which is grace and peace. And God's peace is only through God's grace. Peace with God only comes through our standing with God, our acceptance before God, by his grace. It's by grace are you saved through faith. And this not of yourself it is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast that we have been saved by God's grace, by God's undeserved favor upon us. Therefore, being justified by faith through grace, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you brings peace. Living graciously as a church brings peace together in church. If we live by our will and our expectations and our aims and our ambitions, there will not be peace and harmony among others within the body. If we are extending grace and that grace is epitomized by the life of Christ, Not my will, but yours be done. I will lay down my ambition for the sake of others. I will consider others more important than myself. That's grace lived. That brings peace within a body. It's hard to fight with somebody who you sincerely can tell has your best interests at heart. Oh, a church of Timothy's, at brush prairie. I've got nobody else I could send. I've got a list of folks I could send who I know would sincerely care for your needs. That's Paul's aim for the church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you need peace? I can't leave these verses, I can't leave the passage today without asking that question. Grace and peace is extended. Do you need peace? One level or another, probably, probably do. Perhaps a striving to be enough by yourself, perhaps striving to be good enough, to manage your life good enough, to stop doing that and start doing that. And finally, God could be pleased with you. As if his pleasure with you was based on your earning it, rather than his undeserved favor freely received in Jesus. Grace Brings peace, when you trust God's grace, when you trust your acceptance on that basis, not on your own striving, that's when you'll experience peace with God. I belong to Him and with Him. Striving with someone. Do you need peace in a relationship? Is there a conflict? Is there a striving, wanting it your way, or they want it their way? You need we need to give way. We need to yield as much as is with us to be at peace with all men, extending grace toward others, realizing that they simply may see it different. Christians should not be so caught up in this present political divide Christians ought to be the, 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 if any, bridge makers out there. It ought to be us. Not that we're going to cave on things that we think are important in society, cave on values that you have about this or about this, but can I see the other point of view? Can I be gracious about what I believe? We're going to have to do that in witnessing the gospel as well. And in being gracious toward others, we can enjoy peace with others. Maybe your, your striving is in the midst of a need. Maybe there's a circumstance. Maybe there's a situation. And it is awful. How did we ever get to this point? What are we going to do now? I know some of you are experiencing those kind of things in life. And some of you are experiencing them, and I don't know. I hope somebody around you knows. I hope it's not something you're bearing only on your own, carrying it within, trying to keep a brave face out to everybody else. I hope you're able to come alongside somebody and say, Would you pray for me? This is what we're in the midst of. It's hard, we're hurting. The thing about the body of Christ is we don't walk alone, we don't need to walk alone. But are you anxious in any needs, needing to see beyond the bars, needing to see beyond those present circumstances, to see Christ in the midst of life? He he sweat, as it were, drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Lord, if there's any way, let this pass for me. And God did not abandon him in the the reality of nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. God strengthened him for the hardest thing possible. And God worked redemptively in ways that we would have never seen coming. He told his disciples what it was going to be, and his disciples still didn't grab it. So why would we have seen it any differently? We can rest in Him. We can rest knowing that God has us, that God, God cares more about us even in the midst of the circumstances. But the circumstances, this situation, this moment, this month, this year, this decade, these are not God's goal. His goal for you and I is the likeness of Christ for eternity. And He will allow us, even these circumstances, to be pressed toward him in ways that hurt, not for his ultimate glory merely, for our good, for our glory. He who began a good work in you, he will complete it. I can trust him. Jesus is our life now. It's not defined the way it used to be. Jesus is our example. Let that mind be more in us together, caring for one another. A new goal that looks farther beyond the bars into God's fruitful eternity. Knowing that it's different categories, it's different means, it's different expectations, but it's in his sufficiency. Who is enough for these things? Not you, not I, but Christ. My God will supply all your needs that I can be sure of. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these, the strivings that we talked about, those things that that steal our peace, Lord, the the concerns, even about our own acceptability. and what do you think of us? Father, would you would you help us to rest in Jesus, the one who is sufficient for us? Father, we pray for. Lord, the, the, the striving that can happen, the lack of peace that happens in one relationship to another. Father, perhaps in our body this morning, perhaps among the church, there are hurts. There is conflict. There is a lack of peace. Lord, would you apply your grace there in such a way that each one would consider the other more important than themselves. And in that valuing of grace more than our own way Lord you would make peace Father I pray for those especially in the midst of anxieties that are the press of this present world a world which entices us towards so much and then pulls the rug out in ways that we constantly strive to somehow grab hold of it oh Lord would you direct our gaze further would you direct our gaze upward Lord, would you instead show us Jesus to be complete in him? Father, would you allow us to give ourselves away in the serving of others? Would you allow us to give ourselves away even in this offering now? Would you allow us and strengthen us to trust you even in that prayer request that's now shared as part of that offering? That we trust ourselves to you. We offer ourselves to you. Lord, again, would we lift up Josh and Danielle and others like them that are seeking Lord, what would you have me to do? And we pray for your grace and your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.